In John chapter 1, we're going to look at uh, one of the most uh, amazing passages of Scripture. It talks about Christmas, talks about a lot of things. But as you're kind of setting the scene for that, I want you to think about this. And I, I found this, and uh, somebody had written it, and it just is amazing to, to think about some of the things that are here. It says, Before there were vast black holes sucking matter into the staggering abyss of interstellar space, before there existed stardust and subatomic particles forming matter and energy, before there was light or darkness, before there was time or space, before there was breath or belief, there was only and always God. This God was as and is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, infallible, independent, not standing in need of any creatures, but only and always manifesting His own glory. His glory is beyond anything we can imagine. And although it remains a mystery to this day, a mind-boggling mystery to us, the Bible teaches that God exists as three persons of one substance, power, and eternity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And it's impossible for us to understand what life is like with this tri-unity, this trinity. So much conflict, so much confusion, so much restlessness defines the world in which we find ourselves. That it's hard to conceive of the absolute communion and contentment and joy within the life of God Himself. If we were to taste that for even a nanosecond, it would be the most rapturous reality we had ever known. Chills would run up and down the length of our body for all eternity. Imagine all understanding, all beauty, all love suddenly and simultaneously filling every pore of your being, becoming your being in wave after wave of circuit-shattering sweeping shudders of bliss. And now realize that if you were to experience that for 10,000 years, you would still not know a billionth of the glory of actually being God for a single instant. Utter communion. Absolute contentment. Endless, perfect joy. And what John communicates in his gospel at the very beginning when he says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It is only when we touch the hem of the garment of the glory of that thunderous reality that what happened on Christmas can start to come home to us. Because what happens next is even more amazing. Eugene Peterson in the message paraphrases it this way, John 1.14. And this sublime word became flesh and blood and moved into our neighborhood. Now, I don't know fully about your neighborhood. Some of you live close to me, but not in my neighborhood exactly. But my neighborhood is not a place of utter communion. 
absolute contentment or endless perfect joy. And the reason is, is because I have neighbors. Neighbors across the street that some have, sometimes have guests till the middle of the night and park all over the street and music is played or in the summer lights are on outside. I have neighbors who uh, have no regard sometimes for the people in the neighborhood and they're driving down the street and will go way too fast and we're out riding bikes or playing ball in the yard. and It's a little frustrating. I have neighbors that have no regard for my yard and will ride through it or around it or be in it. I have neighbors that decide that every major or minor holiday is a time to recreate the Revolutionary War with their fireworks displays. Anybody live over in Loretta area? Can I attest to that? Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's Flag Day, fireworks. Arbor Day, fireworks. And the 4th of July, I feel like the Redcoats are coming and I'm bunkering down. My neighborhood is not a place of utter contentment, absolute joy. And yet, God chose that infinite, endless God chose to come and be a part of our neighborhood. The dilemma of John 1 is this juxtaposition, this putting side by side, the unbelievably glorious God and us. Two of my favorite books of, of, of my pilgrimage, of my spiritual pilgrimage, uh, kind of illustrate this in some ways. My, one of my favorite books is The Knowledge of the Holy by A.W. Tozer. And I, I don't know if any of you have read it. Um, it. It is a study in the characteristics and the character of God. This is a book that you don't read laying in bed at night. It's a book you have to read the same page four or five times to fully grasp what's on there. It has high and lofty understandings of God. Just for instance, this is a chapter on God's infinitude. Now, I don't know how many of you have dwelt on His infinitude lately, but here's what it says. The word infinite has not always been held to precise meaning, but has been used carelessly to mean simply much or a great deal. Properly, the word can be used of no created thing and of no one but God. Infinitude can belong to but one. When we say God is infinite, we mean that He has no bounds. Whatever God is and all that God is, He is without limit. And here again, we must break away from the popular meaning of words, unlimited wealth or boundless energy. Again, to say God is infinite is to say that He is measureless. Measurement is the way created things have of accounting for themselves It describes limitations, imperfections, cannot apply to God. Weight describes the gravitation. You get the idea? It's not easy reading. But it's important reading about the heaviness of who God is. My other favorite book is a book by a guy named Max Lucado called God Came Near. Max's writing is very understandable and simple. It's approachable. Um, he, he has a whole chapter in here. This is, by the way, this is a great Christmas book. This is a book about Christmas. The first part is almost completely about Christmas. And uh, he has a chapter in here, 25 questions for Mary, and they're just simple questions. 
Did you see him with a distant look as if his face were listening to someone else that you couldn't hear? Did you ever try to count the stars with him and he succeeded? Did he ever come home with the black eye? How did he act at his first haircut? Did he have any friends named Judas growing up? Simple. And yet the message of John chapter 1 is that this holy, infinite God is as approachable as can be. It's bringing these two together. John 1, verses, chapter 1, verses 1 through 14 say this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things. That's one of those words. Remember in Greek the word all means all. All things were created through Him. And apart from Him not one thing was created that has been created. Life was in Him and that life was the light of men. Now, I want you to think about something just real quickly okay? before we keep moving on. Who's writing this? John. Was there anybody on this earth while Jesus was in ministry that knew Jesus better? He was his best friend. We talked about that Sunday. He's the one that John entrusted his mother to. Don't you find that your closest friends know you best and they know your fallings and your failures best? Now, they may forgive them or overlook them or be gracious or merciful about them, but they know you best. They know you're good and you're bad. The guy that walked with him every day says about him, the guy he walked next to, the guy he was ate dinner with, the guy he walked the streets with, nothing in this world was created unless he did it. Life was in him, and that life was the light of men. Verse 5. That light shines in the darkness, yet the darkness did not overcome it. There was a man named John who was sent from God. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light, the true light who gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was created through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, it's interesting to read this in light of reading John 3.16 on Sunday. But to all who did receive him, he gave the right to be children of God. To those who believe into his name. Who were born not of blood or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh. And took up residence among us. We observed his glory, the glory of the one and only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So John opens his gospel in John chapter 1 verse 1 with a recollection of Genesis 1 verse 1 and says, in the beginning, just to remind you, we're starting in Genesis, now we're back, but this is the beginning. This guy, Jesus, was the Word and was with the Word. He uses the word Greek word logos, which meant an explanation or a communication or a word about. It's the word that at the end of um, study terms now are there. So it, it, at the end of theology is study about God or 
a word about God. When you get to biology, it's a study of life. That is the base of the word, and it just meant a definitive word about or a definitive explanation of. And so we're thinking of God himself. It says that Jesus was a definitive explanation or word about God. This is the truth, the way, the life. And when he gets there, he says, that word, that one that was almighty, that was with God. In Philippians 2, the idea is the one who had equality with God, he didn't consider it something to be held on to. But it says in John 1.14, that word became flesh. John uses a very particular word here because there were a group of people running around called the docetist. How many of you have ever encountered a docetist? You don't have those at uh, BP anymore. Nobody runs into those. They were people that said Jesus was a good teacher and we believe he was God, but there's no way he could be human because to be God, you can't be human. Now, most of us, outside of our understanding of Jesus, say, well, that's right, you can't be God and human. So they try to explain it away. And John says, no, you can't explain that away like that. The word became, and he uses the word that means flesh and blood, fully human, our bodies. He took on our bodies. The incarnation happened at once. The one who was always God became a human being as well. The one who has already existed forever now existed for the rest of forever as both human and God. One of the ancient creeds says about this, who for us and our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary and was made man. Jesus becoming flesh is a centerpiece to our faith. Y'all remember Larry King? Remember that guy? He used to have a talk show for a couple of years, right? He hadn't had it in a little while. Larry King used to like to bring people on of faith and talk to them and would usually give them a pretty fair interview for the first little bit. He brought on pastors. He'd bring on, I mean, he's had Billy Graham on. He's had Rick Warren on. He's had Joel Osteen on. He's had all these preachers on. If, they, if you get to be a big preacher, you get on Larry King, all right? And he would talk to him for a little bit, talk about the good stuff, their background, their life and all that. And then he would kind of lean forward, put his hands and say, now, you don't actually believe that Jesus is the only way to God. And depending on the preacher, some of them him hauled around it and some of them said, no, that's what we believe. Larry King doesn't claim to be a believer, but they asked him a question one time. They said, if you could ask anybody in history one question, what would you ask? That's what you ask of an interviewer, right? Who would you like to have on your show? And you can ask one question. He said, I'd like to have Mary on my show. And I would ask her, is the virgin birth true? Because if it is, it changes everything. Now, here's a guy that's not a believer in Jesus that realizes the remarkable understanding of Jesus being God incarnate and the impact it has if it's true. Here's the temptation for us. As believers, the temptation for us is not to accept the full humanness or humanity of Jesus. I mentioned this book, God Came Near. I'm going to read just a little part of it because there's this fascinating thing in here uh, where um, Max Lucado reminds us that 
just exactly what we're talking about when he says he became flesh. It says it happened in a moment, a most remarkable moment. The omnipotent in one instance made himself breakable. He who had been spirit became pierceable. He who was larger than the universe became an embryo. And he who sustains the world with a word chose to be dependent upon the nourishment of a young girl. God as a fetus. Holiness sleeping in a womb. The creator of life being created. We're walking through this idea of embryos and life growing inside because we have a child coming in July. And every week we get emails that gives us a picture and a description of what's developed in the last week. And as we've been going through this Christmas season, for some reason it just hit me. You know, I mean, we think of the baby in the manger, but he became an embryo. That tiny. I mean, the God whom the universe couldn't contain became a few cells. God was given eyebrows, elbows, two kidneys, and a spleen. He stretched against the walls and floated in the amniotic fluids of his mother. God came near. He came not as a flash of light or as an unapproachable conqueror, but as one whose first cries were heard by a peasant girl and a sleepy carpenter. The hands that first held him were unmanicured, calloused, and dirty. No silk, no ivory, no hype, no party, no hoopla. I would add, no prepared nursery, no hospital room, no fireworks. Were it not for the shepherds, there would have been no reception. And were it not for a group of stargazers, there would have been no gift. Angels watched as Mary changed God's diaper. The universe watched with wonder as the Almighty learned to walk. Children played in the street with Him and had the synagogue leader in Nazareth known who was sitting in there listening to His sermon? Jesus probably had pimples. He could have been tone deaf. Perhaps a girl down the street had a crush on Him or vice versa. His Knees may have been bony. One thing's for sure. He was, while completely divine, completely human. For 33 years, he would feel everything you and I have ever felt. He felt weak. He grew weary. He was susceptible to wooing women. He got colds. He burped. He had body odor. His feelings got hurt. His feet got tired. And his head ached. To think of him in the light, it almost seems irreverent. It's not something we like to do. It's uncomfortable. It's much easier to keep the humanity out of the incarnation. Clean the manure from around the manger. Wipe the sweat out of his eyes. Pretend he never snored or blew his nose or hit his thumb with a hammer. He's easier to stomach that way. There's some distant package predictable about keeping him there. But don't do it. For heaven's sake, let him be as human as he intended to be. Let him into the mire and muck of our world, for only if we let him in can he pull us out. He became flesh. Um, I, I was talking this week with uh, staff, and um, we, we have devotional at staff meeting every week, and Alan gave a devotional uh, out, out of this book, actually, out of God Came Near, which brought it to mind in some ways when I started to look through John chapter 1. 
about Jesus being approachable and, and different things. And um, I can't remember if it was in full staff meeting or when Alan and, and Coat and Jeff and I were sitting talking about some things. I just said, what's remarkable to me is the time God chose to send Jesus when it wasn't a clean, sterile time. I mean, it's a, we live in a pretty clean, sterile time. I mean, dirt for us in our homes is rare compared to what it's been for most of history, right? When we go to Brazil, um, Randy, what are the, you, you see this sometimes. Carolyn, you may remember this. Kathy, what do the women around there that work for the volunteers of the church, what do they do most of the day while we're working? They're sweeping that dirt, right? I mean, that, that's all they do. They sweep dirt. Every time you look, it's dirt being swept because it's just dirt everywhere. There are dirt roads, dirt, and they keep it clean for us, but it, it, it's a dirty environment. You, you come home from, from uh, even being inside, and you've got dirt on your clothes, and it's just a different environment. And, and God chose to send Jesus to a time when clean water wasn't always available. and He came in the mire and muck of an occupied people, a people who were under control of a foreign government. And John says, he became flesh. He took everything he was. And then he says, and he, the word he uses, he, he tented with us. The, the actual understanding is that he tabernacled with us. Now, where does that word tabernacle come from? It comes from the Old Testament, right? What was the, what was the tabernacle in the Old Testament? What was the thing in the Old Testament in Exodus when they come out of Egypt and they need a place to worship and to sacrifice and to understand God's presence, they built this tent. It was a huge tent. It wasn't like a you know pop-up. It was a big tent. Every time they moved, they tore it down. They built it back. Whenever they got somewhere, the first thing they built was a place to sacrifice the animals so that they could get forgiveness of sin because without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. So they would do that. And then they had different things set up next to that was a, a, um, uh, next to where the ritual sacrifice was. There was a place where they could wash their hands. There was a basin of water. Next to that was um, a bread that was set out that was called the bread of presence. Next to that was a huge golden lamp stand. There was a table of incense there that was prominent. Um, there was an inner court. And then there was the Holy of Holies. And the Holy of Holies had a cabinet called the mercy seat that housed the Ark of the Covenant, the Ten Commandments, and all of that. And here was the thing about the tabernacle. If you weren't ready and cleansed, you didn't go into the tabernacle. Anybody remember the names Nadab and Abihu? Nobody, you heard anybody named Nadab and Abihu lately? Nadab and Abihu were two guys that had a little too much of the fermented grape juice. They didn't use grape juice at communion. They partook of the real stuff. And after they had partaken of a little too much, they wandered into the tabernacle. Anybody want to guess what happened? They're dead. The tabernacle was a place you didn't enter unless you were completely ready. Now what you have here, and this is what John is doing, I believe. John is showing that, you know, you've seen, some of you have seen the... the, the, the uh, bridge illustration where you have God and you have man and you have 
cross, the cross in the middle that bridges the gap between God and man. I think John is doing that in this verse. He's saying, listen, God became flesh. And the reason God became flesh is because he came to tabernacle with us. Now, what the tabernacle was, was the physical presence or symbol of God among his people. And in the New Testament, the tabernacle is Jesus, at least in the Gospels. Jesus is the one that comes. And what does he say? He says, first of all, that he is the Lamb of God. That's what John says. He's the Lamb of God. He is the sacrifice. We see that at the cross. He is the sacrifice for our sins. He says, I am the, uh, I am the living water. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. He is that portion of the water there. He is the bread of life, just like the bread of presence. You get the sense that Jesus describes himself as all of these things that they would have immediately associated with the temple, or I mean with the tabernacle or the temple by that time, and saying, I am those things. I am the physical presence of God among you. Now, here's the difference. Nobody came close to the tabernacle unless they were completely cleansed. People came close to Jesus all the time. We don't see anybody in Scripture that's hesitant to approach Jesus. Tax collectors, sinners, lepers, women with issues of blood, people that wouldn't approach anybody feel very comfortable approaching Jesus. Think about that. God Almighty walking among the earth and He's the most approachable person you have ever seen. Just amazing. John is showing this is God in the flesh and the reason He's in the flesh is because He's showing us what God is like. He is God's physical presence. And then He ends the verse by saying and He demonstrated for us or showed us His glory. He showed us what God is about. Now, the word he uses there is the same word that's used in the Old Testament for God's Shekinah major glory. When the tabernacle is dedicated uh, in Exodus 40, it says the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. When the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, even Moses couldn't get in. The brightness was so great. It would have been like the, getting too close to the sun. Uh, when the people of Israel decide that they don't like what Caleb and Joshua brought back. Remember the spies go over and ten of them come back and say, we can't do that. That is too much. And Joshua and Caleb say, we're going, let's go. God said it, we're supposed to go, we're going. And they go, I don't know. And the people decide they're going to do what to Joshua and Caleb? Follow them? No, they're going to what? Kill them. And what happens? The glory of the Lord descends and the people can't do anything. When Solomon dedicates the temple and he gets on his knees and he prays and he says, Lord, fill this place. The glory of the Lord fills the temple and nobody can walk in. That's the glory that John says Jesus demonstrated. Now, here's the difference. Jesus showed us a glimpse of it so that we could enter into a relationship with a God that we don't have access to except through Jesus. We just see a glimpse of who He is. What John says in John 1.14 is this. That Jesus, who was the Word, who is God, who is that almighty, unbelievable, limitless God, places limits on Himself in coming to earth. He who had known no constraint of space is now constrained by His body. And the reason He did it is because he wanted us to understand that he was the way that we entered into a relationship with the glory of God. And so throughout the rest of John, when 
Jesus interacts with people, we get a little bit more of a glimpse of who God is. When he talks to the woman at the well and he changes her life by telling her who he really is, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. When he talks to Nicodemus about what it means to be born again, and we hear that great phrase, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes into him will have eternal life, not perish. We get a glimpse of the glory of God. When Jesus is weeping at the tomb of Lazarus with Mary and Martha and then says, Lazarus, come forth, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. When Jesus touches the untouchable leopard and he heals him on the spot, we get a glimpse at the compassion and the power of God. When Jesus, on the night before he is to die, prays for you and me, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. When he gives his life on Calvary and cries at the end of that, Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. And when he returns from the grave, victorious over death and sin, we get a glimpse of the glory of God. Christmas is all about understanding that the Word became us so that we might understand and have access to a glorious and wonderful God.